Well, go ahead and be seated and join me in prayer. God, you are our God. We hope in you. We hope in mercies ever new. As we look around our world and our life, we see that so often the bud is bitter. But we, as we look back and see your hand working in the past and with faith as we look ahead to the future, we see that the flower is indeed sweet. And so help us, your people, to trust in you. Help us to be confident that you are good when times are hard. Give us eyes to see your hand at work and hearts that are eager to see what it is you are up to that we might trust you, that we might be humble before you, and that we might content ourselves in you. Lord, save us from looking for meaning or purpose or value apart from you, and help us to rest with full and happy hearts in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. It is good to see you this morning. Um, I want to ask you a question to think about to get us started. When you hear the word ambition, what comes to mind? Likely, I think probably for most of us in here, given the way that our world tends to think about this word, uh, we think about something positive. We think about an attribute, a characteristic that charges hard, uh, that isn't content with mediocrity, that takes bad things and works really hard to turn them into good things. It's one that I think most people in our day would call a virtue. It's why I think when someone asks you how you're doing, we all feel kind of compelled to say that we're really busy. Because to not be busy is to be okay with mediocrity, and that's something none of us want to be. We're working at climbing up to a higher place. It's it's why we like to talk about five-year goals and ten-year goals. We put together large, big plans that we are hoping to pursue. Uh, It's not only why we do the things that we do. It's why I think we are content, even happy, to make sacrifices of other things to pursue these big dreams. It's why... I think one of the most offensive things you can tell somebody is that you don't think the dream that they're pursuing is worth pursuing. Because we work on an attitude of ambition, and if I'm eagerly pursuing this ambitious thing and someone says, maybe that's not the best thing to pursue, we receive that as really offensive. I would argue this ambition is one of the reasons that we tend to feel tired, exhausted, maybe a bit numb to the ordinary. We tend to believe that we have no ceiling, and the worst thing that we could do is to be content and squander our potential. I think that's how we tend to think of ambition. But it's not always been that way. Ambition is one of the words that has changed in how the world tends to view it. It wasn't too long ago where unanimously everybody thought ambition wasn't a virtue but was a vice. Ambition was the reason people got assassinated. 
because somebody was trying to climb a political ladder and saw somebody in their way, took their life so that they could move up. It was ambition that was the result of that. Ambition was the reason why rulers would work hard to get more and more power and oppress their people more and more and to gather more things for themselves. Ambition was the reason that regular people couldn't just be content with their lot in life, but were always striving to chase after something else. We tend to think of the opposite of ambition as apathy. The ancients tended to think of the opposite of ambition as contentment. Here's the curious thing, though. No matter how we tend to view ambition, it's something that I think we can't quite keep ourselves from pursuing. You ever felt that? It's really hard to be content with where you're at. We're going to be in Ecclesiastes 7 this morning. Um, If you're new with us, if you've not been uh, with us the past few weeks, we've been working through the book of Ecclesiastes, and Ecclesiastes is a book that's a bit different than any other book in the Bible. It's one that can, at first glance, feel like a really Debbie Downer. But it's one that has some really wise and helpful counsel to us, and there's life through receiving its words. And so Ecclesiastes 7 is where we're going to be. If you're taking notes to kind of keep yourself organized, the plan is to split this into three chunks. So verses 1 through 14 will be kind of the the main point. Verses 15 to 22 will be the second, and verses 23 through the end will be the last. That'll maybe help keep you organized as we read Ecclesiastes 7. Ecclesiastes 7 says this, A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death is better than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow, he says, is better than laughter. For by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of myrrh. It is better for a man to to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also, he says, is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with or as an inheritance. It's an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the days of prosperity, be joyful. In the days of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. 
In my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you be destroyed? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It's good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in a city. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that your people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you yourself have cursed others. All this I've tested by wisdom. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it? I turned my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom and the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken in by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. A dense passage. One that seemingly at every turn makes a pivot that's different from the one that I think we would find ourselves inclined to take. And so I want to look at the first 14 verses first. If you're taking notes, we're going to call this section, Sorrow is Better Than Slappy Nonsense. We need something a little light. But better than both, the preacher says, is wisdom. This first section is, is like finding your way into a funeral and not wanting to leave. It's a, a strange perspective. He continually turns towards what we would regard as the negative and says, this is better than that. He says, the death day is better than the birthday. He says, being sad is better than being happy. Going to a funeral, he says, is better than going to a party. Now, we talked about this a little bit last week. Justin mentioned something called a chiasm, and I think this will be helpful for us. Um, So let me show you this and see if we can tease out a little bit of meaning from here. So this is a form of poetry that we don't use often, but I want you to look in your Bibles um, at the first part of verse 1 and the last part of verse 8. So in verse 1, he has two things. He says, a good name is better than precious ointment. And in verse 8, the last half of it, he says the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. So you might be able to tie together a good name with being patient, 
and precious ointment with being proud. One symbolizes wealth and uh, attractiveness. The other is patience. Then if you look at the next line, let me show you how this works out. So the second half of verse 1 says the day of death is better than the day of birth. And if you look at the first half of verse 8, it says the end is better than the beginning. So you can see how those kind of mirror each other. And that works its way on through these 10 verses. Uh, You can see in verse 2, it's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. Um, And in verse... uh, Uh, Verses 5 to 7, that a wise rebuke is better than uh, a song. And the middle part, if you kind of keep working your way onto this, is verse 3. And so the middle part in a chiasm is where everything is working towards. And verse 3, he says that sorrow is better than laughter. That's not a statement I think many of us would make. We don't enjoy being sad, but we do enjoy laughing. It's an altogether shocking conclusion. Ecclesiastes says if you're given two options, sorrow or uh, a thin laughter that covers over the surface, you should pick sorrow. And then notice what he says, the reason why. Look at the last half of verse 3. For by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. It says a glad heart only comes from working your way through the sorrow. So if your options are sorrow or laughter, Ecclesiastes says the better option is sorrow. But, Ecclesiastes says, there is a better option. The better option is wisdom. So look at verses 11 to 14. He compares wisdom to an inheritance. And in the same way that an inheritance would benefit you, would protect you, would keep you safe and secure, he says wisdom does this as well. When you get yourself into a bind, an inheritance can financially get you out of that bind. And he says wisdom, if you have it, can also get you out of a bind. So if you have to pick frivolous laughter or thoughtful sorrow, he says pick sorrow but better than either of those is wisdom. Now, here's the piece that might come as an additional surprise to you. This wisdom that he's pursuing, I want you to notice, it's a modest wisdom. We tend to want more than what Ecclesiastes says we can give. So notice that it's it's not a wisdom that results in being able to control your circumstances. We tend to think of wisdom as, as almost like, like a chessboard where you can navigate your pieces in a way and walk your opponent into a corner so you can then lay the trap. But Ecclesiastes says this wisdom recognizes that there's days of joy and that there's days of adversity. This wisdom doesn't control your circumstances. It simply gives you the ability to perceive what's going on and respond accordingly. It's not a know-it-all wisdom because Ecclesiastes says in verse 14 that you don't even know what comes after you. It's a wisdom that's, that's modest. It's a wisdom that contents itself with the things that God has given. And Ecclesiastes says it's a wisdom that is better 
than sorrow or laughter. See, one of the challenges I think that Ecclesiastes places most strongly before us is that we ought to be content with modesty rather than forever chasing more and more and more. So the first section, verses 1 to 14, if you must choose sorrow or laughter, Ecclesiastes says the shocking thing, pick laughter, but better than either of these is a modest wisdom. Let's check the next section. So verses 15 to 22. In this section, he sets up two things, and he says, don't go after either of these. On one hand, he says, don't go after this kind of stiff, self-righteous religiousness. And on the other hand, he says, don't go after this kind of silly stupidity. These, I think, maybe both also catch us a little bit off guard. So uh, look at verse 16. He says, Be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. So I think by overly righteous, the idea that he has in mind is being really religious in the way that our world tends to use it. So this would be kind of stuck up a little bit, a little bit self-righteous, a little bit nose down on other people, feeling that you have it all together. He says, don't pursue this. He also says, don't be too wise, by which I think he means don't try to be a know-it-all. He says, if you pursue both of these things, the end will be destruction. It'll be frustration. Maybe some images that might help you catch what I think he's after in being too, too righteous and too wise is maybe we would think of Babel. So you remember all the people come together at the Tower of Babel and they think, here's what we're going to do. We're going to collaborate together so that we can build a large tower so that we can rise above our ranks and do things that none of us can do. And you know the end of the story. God wipes the tower flat, scatters the people. This over-wisdom, this over-righteousness resulted in frustration and destruction. Maybe we think of, of the Roman Empire trying to take over the whole world. Maybe you think of your pursuit to wrap your hands around more than you can actually hold. Maybe we think of, of our desire to uh, think that we, this one's personal for me, that we will be a far better parent than our parents ever were, that we're so much wiser and so much more righteous than they were, and what they did wrong, I'll set right. We tend to be a people who operates too wise, the preacher says, and too righteously in a way that looks down at others, that exalts ourselves, and that will result, he says, in frustration. Growing up and all the way up until not too terribly long ago, uh, I made a little vow to myself. I love the question why. I think it has a way of getting to things that you don't get to if you just content yourself with how things are. And so I've loved the question why for a long time, and I told myself that because I love the question why, because I think it's a worthwhile question to ask, what I won't do is tell my daughter, because I told you so. 
because that chops off the why, and I said, I'm, I'm not doing that. I was being smug, self-righteous, wiser than my parents, and the other day, um, our daughter has gotten into one of the why phases, and I reached my limit. And I blurted what I said I would not blurt. And I angrily said, because I told you. And I realized in that moment that in my righteousness, in my overwisdom, I was actually neither of those. And that there is some wisdom in those who've gone before me. There's a reason parents say, because I told you so. We tend to be a people who chase after wisdom in an unhealthy way in an ambitious way rather than in a modest way. We try to wrap our hands around and control things. We don't have any business or ability to wrap our hands around and control. We do the same thing with our, quote, righteousness. You notice he even says that there's not one who's righteous. So it's pretend righteousness from the beginning. So he says, on one hand, don't pursue these things. Don't pursue this uh, know-it-all wisdom. Don't pursue this religious, self-righteous smugness. But the other thing that he says is, don't be stupid. And did you see the reason why? Why should you die before your time? You live in stupid ways and you face stupid Consequences, And so the preacher says, don't be stupid and don't be overly wise. Instead, he says, look at verse 18. He says, fear God. That's the alternative to both of these. And then notice what he holds there right tightly together. Verse 19, he then begins talking about wisdom again. And you might go, well, I, I thought he just said not to be overly Wise, not to be too wise, and here he is now saying that wisdom gives you the strength to outshine ten rulers. Well, notice here that this time he's paired wisdom together with fear of God, and this makes sense, right? Many of you will have memorized Proverbs 1-7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Wisdom apart from the fear of the Lord is no wisdom. The only way to pursue wisdom is through the fear of the Lord. And again, you notice that this is a modest wisdom. It's not a a know-it-all wisdom like the wisdom that he said don't chase after. It's a wisdom that's okay, he even says, with knowing that those around you are cursing you behind your back and not stopping it. The, The wisdom that would seek to control everything that happens isn't okay with people talking bad behind your back. But this wisdom, he says, you yourself know you've said things behind other people's backs, so don't be surprised when people do it to you. This is a a modest wisdom, not an ambitious wisdom. And so again and again, he points us to modesty rather than ambition. The last section I want you to notice is verses 23 to 29. And and this, I think, is the most difficult section for us. Um, Here he says to be be content with your limited understanding. Contentment. Uh, He tries, he tells us, to go and find the meaning of things, and he's left frustrated. 
says that he tried and couldn't do it. He said, I'll be wise, but what does he say in verse 23? It's far from me. He tries and he can't find it. And so he tries in two ways. He tries, he can't find it, and then stubborn man that he is, he gives it two more goes. So in verses 25 and 26, he turns his heart to seek out, to understand, to know the schemes of things, and he finds something that he says is more bitter than death. He finds, he says, the woman whose heart is snares and nets, and those whose hands are fetters, the one who pleases God escapes her, and the one who's taken by her, he says, is a sinner. I think what he's referencing here, what he's alluding to, is you may remember in Proverbs 9, Solomon introduces us to two different ladies, or personifications of ladies. He's got on one hand, there's Lady Wisdom, and she stands out and she calls people to come to her. And she offers a great banquet, a feast, plenty of stuff to have. And she says, if you come to me, you'll receive life. So there's Lady Wisdom over here. And then over here, there is Lady Folly, this foolish lady. And she notices people going to Lady Wisdom. And so she begins to call people as well. But the result that happens when people come to Lady Folly is they end up in death. So Lady Wisdom gives life and Lady Folly gives death. And I think that's the lady that he's talking about here in verse 26 is Lady Folly who calls and summons people to come to her and it results in death and destruction. And the curious thing, the thing that I think the preacher can't quite get himself past, can't quite understand, that leaves him exasperated and frustrated, is he notices that everybody, even after they understand who Lady Folly is and what she does, they all do the same thing. They go and they shack up with Lady Folly, and it results in destruction, and and they know it when they go that way. Maybe you've seen this in yourself. You can look down a path and know where it ends, but find yourself drawn to it and going down it, though you know it's not good for you. The preacher sees this, and he's baffled by it. Why is it that we keep doing this? And the preacher tells us that he set out to understand, and he only came to understand that our actions are not understandable. They're not logical. They don't make sense. This is the very nature of sin, is its willful nonsense. And so this doesn't give him the understanding that he seeks, so he backs up and he tries another path. And verses 27 to 29 are perhaps the most perplexing of all of this passage. It sounds like What he says in verses 27 to 29 is that he thinks nearly everybody's bad. Sounds like, oh, maybe he's found one upright person, but this upright person is always a man and that he's never found an upright woman. 
That's what it sounds like he's saying. In fact, there are some translations that actually supply a word there because one of the things that makes this verse, these few verses particularly difficult is the preacher says he's going out and he's looking and he finds one man in a thousand and doesn't find a woman, but he doesn't tell us what kind of man or what kind of woman it is that he's looking for. It's just empty there. And so some translations have actually supplied a word in there that they think might fit, and they usually pull something like upright or honest from verse 29. But in verse 28, there's actually no word there saying what kind of man or woman he's pursuing. So let me tell you what I think is going on here. I don't think what he's saying is all people are bad, but especially women. What I think is going on here is he's not looking for uprightness. I think he's looking for schemes. So notice at verse 25, when he starts this whole section, he's searching out the scheme of things. And then notice in verse 27, he's adding one thing to another in order to do what? To find out the scheme of things. And then you notice in verse 29, he says, God has made humans upright. But interestingly, instead of uprightness, The opposite he sees of uprightness isn't sin, but chasing many schemes. And so I think what he's trying to do is he's trying to do what he's been trying to do this whole book. Understand why humans do the things they do. He's trying to understand the scheme of things. And so he goes out searching. And he says, I searched far and wide. I searched high and low. I searched around and I couldn't find anybody that I understood. They were all doing things that made no sense. They were all pursuing their own schemes, and none of them made sense. Okay, one time I found somebody who I thought I understood, but he was a man. I've never in all my life found a woman that I understand. I think that's what he's saying. Humans are beyond understanding. Okay, once in a while I've understood somebody who shares my gender, but I've never understood the opposite. It's maybe something you can identify with. And so, again, he finds himself a little befuddled. What are people doing? Why are they doing it? And why do they keep doing the things that they shouldn't do? Far from being content, he says, we seek to work to understand things that are beyond us, things that aren't ours to grab. And we try to master the world. We try to control other people to get us what we want. We treat our our friends and our family, our coworkers, our neighbors, as if we can manipulate them to get the reward that, that we want. Instead of being content that we are made upright, we pursue schemes. Sounds a lot like the garden, right? Adam and Eve placed in a perfectly happy place. Made in the image of God. But rather than finding themselves content, what was the temptation that lured them? Eat the fruit and you will be like God. Instead of uprightness, he says we pursue schemes to the detriment of us and to the detriment of of others. And this is, this is news that leaves the preacher frustrated, annoyed, confused. And you see, 
This is news, though. This is frustrating news is what actually makes the good news receivable. You see, Ecclesiastes has only half of the message. Ecclesiastes clearly sees our foolishness. He clearly sees the the futility, the vanity, the brokenness of the world. He sees the the vanity, the pointlessness of trying to shepherd, or your translation may say, uh, to chase the wind. He sees the pain in our lives and the frustration of our efforts, but he doesn't quite glimpse the good news. Indeed, he says, God has made us upright, but we have pursued schemes. You see, the good news is this. While we have foolishly been scheming, God has been wisely scheming. And in God's scheming, he centers on righting our wrongs, on fixing what we in our sin have broken. So if you feel the frustration of Ecclesiastes, and I hope you do, first, see that you're not alone. See, I think the reason many of us find a a strange, almost unexplainable comfort in the book of Ecclesiastes is because we look around at our world and it looks like all these other people have it figured out. And like things are going good for them and we look at our own lives and think, my life's a mess. Why isn't my life like theirs? And then you pick up Ecclesiastes and you read it and you go, huh, I'm not alone. Ecclesiastes is confused, befuddled, frustrated, angry at everything that's happening too, and and you find that you have some kinship. So first, if you feel the frustration that Ecclesiastes does, recognize you're not alone. But the second thing I want you to do is I want you to hear the word of the Lord. God has sent his own son into our frustrated world to seek and to save the lost. To bind up the sick and to heal the broken. What must we do? But here's, here's the good news. You find yourself frustrated, confused? Your job is come. Come to Jesus. Give up The preacher would say, you're scheming because, newsflash, it doesn't work. Give it up. Give up your ambitions because they won't get you what you actually need. Instead, simply come to Jesus whose yoke is easy and whose burden is light. Ecclesiastes gives us eyes to see how broken and frustrated and painful our world is. It leaves us longing for something that will fix, something that's better. And Ecclesiastes points us forward. And you and I have the privilege, the benefit, the joy of sitting on this side of the cross where we can look back and see what Ecclesiastes was hoping to see somewhere in the future. So let me encourage you. Come to Jesus. 
everything else you chase and pursue will not satisfy or deliver. Pray with me. God, you are good. You are greatly to be praised. You are to be honored above all. And we thank you and praise you that in your majesty, in your goodness, you've been scheming. That you've been scheming for your glory and for our good. That we can have a hope and a future and a purpose and a joy because you reign and you rule. And so, great God, we pray that you would occupy our lowly hearts and that you would reign supreme.